This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, more than 50 years since the last time an American lunar lander is once again on the moon's surface and about to send back pictures. How it came to be at long last and how it almost didn't. Also tonight, more breaking news as the Biden administration prepares to impose new sanctions on Russia over the death of Alexei Navalny and the former president is still not criticizing Putin. My conversation with Trump's former top Russia expert, Fiona Hill. And later, Trump wanted another month to pay that massive civil penalty for the business fraud he committed. Now the judge has ruled the answer is no. We begin tonight with breaking news that has not happened since Richard Nixon was president. For the first time since Apollo 17, back in December of 1972, an American lunar lander has touched down on the surface of the moon. We're expecting any minute, we're told, the first images coming in from the Odysseus lander from a spot just north of the moon's south pole. Odysseus lifted off seven days ago. It is the first privately built vehicle to make the mission, and like the Apollo 11, its descent to the lunar surface included some last-minute technical difficulties to overcome. But just like Apollo 11's eagle, Odysseus has landed. Here's what it looked and sounded like in Houston. We can confirm, without a doubt, as our equipment is on the surface of the moon, and we are transmitting. So, congratulations, IM team. We'll see how much more we can get from that. Joining us now is CNN Space and Defense Correspondent Kristen Fisher. So what is Mission Control saying at this hour, Kristen? Well, so far, Mission Control isn't saying anything beyond the fact that they have equipment on the surface of the moon and that it is transmitting signals back to the Mission Control in Houston, Texas. So, Anderson, uh, at the very least, this is a partial success, according to the company. Uh, The big question now is what condition is this lunar lander in and can it send back pictures? We are still waiting on those first images. Uh, One taken by the lander itself and then another one, uh, there's a little camera that popped off called the Eagle Cam. It popped off of the lander shortly before landing. And so we should be getting images from that as well. That's what we're waiting for. Uh, But you know, the fact that this spacecraft has even touched down on the surface of the moon and did transmit that signal is a pretty tremendous accomplishment in and of itself. The first time a private company has ever done this, the first time an American-made spacecraft has done this since 1972. And Anderson, it's the first time that any spacecraft has touched down on the south pole of the moon, a critical spot. They think that's where ice is, water, It's where NASA wants to build a lunar base for Artemis astronauts, the first astronauts to return to the moon Mm. since the Apollo program. And it's where China wants to build a base as well. Uh, But Anderson, some real nail-biting moments. The NASA administrator uh, described it as an Apollo 13 moment with no humans on board, of course, because of some of the technical issues they had to troubleshoot. Yeah, what happened? I mean, uh, up until the last second, the, the difficulties. Yeah, Anderson, it's so wild. I mean, they were really fixing on the fly. They had an issue. You know how radar works. Radar, radar uh, it sends out a, a radio signal, which then bounces off uh, an object, which lets you tell how far away you are from it. Uh, well, this is LIDAR, laser, instead of radio waves, light waves bouncing off of it. And that's what the spacecraft, this robotic, uncrewed spacecraft uses to find a safe landing spot because the moon has you know, craters and boulders all over it. 
there was a problem with Intuitive Machines' LiDAR navigation system. And so it just so happened that NASA had an experimental LiDAR payload uh, on the lander as well. They were somehow able to patch it through to the lunar lander, Odysseus, and that experimental, experimental NASA navigation system, LiDAR, is what they were able to use to get this on the surface of the moon. So pretty incredible that they were able yeah. to pull it off. But now uh, we want to see the pictures, Anderson, right? Yeah, Kristen, stick around. I want to bring in CNN aerospace analyst Miles O'Brien, former NASA astronaut as well, Leland yeah. Melvin. So Leland, you flew in two missions to space. I'm wondering what stands out to you about this landing. Anderson, you know, anytime that you go to space, you always find something that's not going to work. And so in my space shuttle missions, we had some things we had to kind of work on the fly, just like they did with Nova C, where we had to switch the light radar for the LIDAR in a payload that wasn't meant to be used for mm. this. And I think this shows the American ingenuity, what you can do on the fly when you have to make something work. And it's an incredible, incredible accomplishment for the uh, for the team. Yeah, and Miles, I mean, we saw that two-hour period when controllers were troubleshooting the navigation system. Um, I mean, it was, we've seen this in movies, you know, about uh, former, about other, uh, you know, missions in space. How difficult is it for a team on the ground to affect what's actually happening in space? Yeah, that's kind of the frustrating, challenging thing. And this is why engineers get in this racket. Uh, what's, what's interesting about a team like this is the approach is to just work the problem, just keep working the problem. Something comes up, you work it. You don't sit on your, your hands and wait for things to happen. You come up with alternatives. And to me, you know, when you think about Apollo, what do you, everybody remembers Apollo 11, the first moon landing. What's the next one they remember? Apollo 13. That was by all intents and purposes, you could call that a failure. You could call it NASA's greatest triumph, which is what I would ascribe to. And that was because of this very fact. You had a, a, an engineering team, the best of the brightest, uh, coping with the situation in real time. And to the extent that this vehicle is on the surface, we're going to give it a victory. Maybe it's not. We're not going to give this landing a 10 from the Romanian judge. They didn't quite stick it. But they're on the surface of the moon, and we got to give them all credit for that. Watching that team do that is exciting, I think. Kristen, the, this laser sensor patch that Odysseus ended up using was improvised and then uplinked. Can you explain kind of for non-space experts what exactly yeah. that means and the risk of it all? Yeah, so, you know, think about what Neil Armstrong did on Apollo 11. He was able to look out the windows of the Eagle lander uh, and he saw that they, it was going to come down in a big boulder field, right? And so he was actually able to take control of the lander and move it to a safe spot. On these robotic spacecrafts, you can't do that. And so uh, 21st century modern lunar landers are using things like cameras and sensors uh, to figure out where to land. And so this LIDAR was using lasers to ping the laser beams off the surface of the moon uh, to try to figure out some of the best spots, safest spots to land. Um, and so that, we don't know what the problem was, but that was the instrument that had a problem. And like I said, Anderson, it just so happened that NASA had this other experimental LIDAR payload that was already on board the lunar lander, and they were able to use that to help, um, you know, figure out exactly where this spacecraft should land. Leland, we know, I mean, there was NASA technology on board Odysseus. How much oversight involvement do they actually have? How does it work? How, how much oversight involvement do they have on private missions? 
Well, I think, you know, this Clips program where they're letting American companies build the hardware, just like what we did with SpaceX when we had, you know, the, the crew cargo program to the International Space Station. So they're building this low-cost hardware to take payloads and things, NASA payloads, to the moon so we can usher in the Artemis program. And I think the oversight is probably, hey, let these guys build a vehicle, we'll take our payloads, but they're going to get all the technical assistance from NASA, all these years of, of storied knowledge of how to put things on the moon, how to have people working and living together on another surface of something. And I think, you know, this is this is a gateway to getting my friend Victor Glover and Christina and the Artemis, the Artemis II crew going to the moon in the next year. So I'm, mm. I'm really excited, Anderson, and I think uh, this is the way we're going to be living and working one day on another planet. Miles, there was an expectation that there would be a, a communications outage once the unit actually landed. Can you kind of walk us through why that's the case and why it took a while to confirm the landing because we're all waiting for it. Yeah, there's no satellites revolving around, Mar uh, excuse me, the moon just yet, Anderson. That's part of the plan, by the way, is to build that kind of infrastructure so that you can truthfully live there in a, in a, in a meaningful way and have communications as best you can. And so as the Earth and the moon rotate and do their dance in space, you have times when you cannot communicate. We all remember the big blackout periods from the Apollo days, if you were around for that. Uh, so that was when when they landed, it was unclear if we we're in what would have been an expected blackout versus something that was perhaps more ominous. I feel like we're somewhere in between the ominous and the expected here. It'll be remain to be seen exactly how healthy this craft is. But, you know, again, the fact that they're on the surface, uh, we got to give them credit. And Kristen, as we mentioned, we're waiting for pictures, for images. If and when we get them, how are they actually going to show up? What would, I mean, are, what do they look like? <laughs> uh, well, we should be getting two different sets of images, and they will come from the company, Intuitive Machines, and their mission control, which is in Houston, right by the Johnson Space Center. The two sets of pictures, one should come, and we should have gotten it a while ago, to be honest, one should come from the lunar lander Odysseus itself, a camera that's mounted on the lander. Uh, and then the other one should come from what's called the Eagle Cam. And this was a, uh, it's the camera essentially pops off Odysseus right before Odysseus lands so that it can get kind of a third person perspective of the landing and capture a shot of Odysseus uh, with the moon behind it, you know, uh, or underneath it. Anderson, I should note that the company that designed that Eagle Cam, they say that the Eagle Cam is intact and working. Um, so it's a good sign, but we just don't have the images yet. So, uh, you know, it's it's tough to really confirm that it worked, but they could come any minute. And I just want to, Chris, just so I can, with the images we're showing right now, is this like an animation? Yeah, this is, uh, this is a, a rendering that you're seeing here from the company Intuitive Machines. And, you know, I should just note that this is, you know, this is a new era of space exploration where commercial, private, in this case, publicly traded companies uh, are leading the charge. This is not a NASA government-run operation that is required uh, to share certain information publicly. Um, NASA is a sponsor. They have several payloads on this mission. But, you know, just like with all these SpaceX launches and missions, we are sort of at the mercy of these private companies uh, to give us these yeah. pictures and give us this data. And I will say Intuitive Machines and the previous U.S. lunar landing attempt last month, Astrobotic, they were both very transparent, um, but 
all of us journalists following this really want some more information right now about the status of Yeah, we're waiting to see Odysseus. why there's no pictures yet. Kristen Fisher, thank you, Miles O'Brien, Leland Melvin as well. We'll, of course, bring you the lunar surface images if and when they come in. We should also mention that Leland is executive producer of the National Geographic film The Space Race, which tells the story of America's pioneering black astronauts. Check that out. Coming up next, more breaking news as President Biden prepares to announce new sanctions on Russia in the wake of Alexei Navalny's death. Also tonight, a report on the state of the war in Ukraine from a hard-hit city, Kherson, on the front lines, and how people there with no place else to go are somehow hanging on every day under heavy shelling. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. The Biden administration is set to announce new sanctions against Russia tomorrow. Now, the Treasury Department is saying that they'll target what they call uh, Russia, its enablers, and its war machine. They follow the arrest in Russia, a Russian-American dual national, the murder of a Russian defector in Spain, and, of course, the death of Alexei Navalny. Late today, we learned that Russian authorities put yet more conditions on Navalny's mother in exchange for releasing his body to her. Navalny's widow and daughter, meantime, met today in San Francisco with President Biden. According to the White House, he expressed his condolences as well as admiration for Navalny and characterized tomorrow's new sanctions as major. Gentler words, and the president used at a fundraiser last night, quoting him now, we have a crazy SOB, the president said, that guy Putin and others, and we always have to be worried about nuclear conflict. He added that the existential threat to humanity is climate. Responding today, the Kremlin spokesman said, quote, clearly Mr. Biden is demonstrating behavior in the style of a Hollywood cowboy to cater to domestic political interests, which is really kind of the thing anyone familiar with the Cold War will recognize, that sort of language. What is unrecognizable, however, in Cold War terms is an American presidential candidate, a Republican no less, refusing to criticize a Russian leader. Donald Trump has still not even mentioned Vladimir Putin's name in connection with Navalny's death. Instead, he says things like this. Uh, we are turning into a communist country in many ways. And if you look at it, I'm the leading candidate. I get indicted. I never heard of being indicted before. I was going I got indicted four times. It's a, lot a of form of Navalny. It is a form of uh, communism or fascism. Well, the other ism he 
fails to mention is his own narcissism. More on these new conditions. Alexei Navalny's mom says Russian officials have set uh, to release her son's body. Seen as Matthew Chances in Moscow for us. So uh, I know she put out a video message today. What did she say? Well, she was very upset. I mean, remember, she's been um, a couple of thousand miles north of Moscow in that Arctic region where Alexei Navalny died in his isolated prison camp, trying to retrieve the body of her son. Um, and she's not been successful so far, but she has now, it's been revealed, managed to see um, the, you know, the corpse of Alexei Navalny, um, his remains. Um, and she's also signed the, the, the death certificate. Uh, we know from a Navalny spokesperson, his team headquarters, uh, saying that the official reason for his death has been put down as natural causes. Uh, and that's something, obviously, that they dispute. They, they accuse the, the Kremlin of, of, of killing uh, Alexei Navalny, something we should say the Kremlin have, have denied. Um, and she said, most worryingly, that before the body is released to her, this is Alexei Navalny's mom, they've set conditions on it, on the funeral. They want, they want to dictate where and when and how the funeral is held. Um, they've said it could be held in Moscow and the body will be flown back on a special aircraft to Moscow. But, you know, it's basically going to be under tight control. They don't want it to be a public funeral. They want it to be a secret one, a private one. Uh, and that's something that Navalny's mother and Navalny's team are at the moment resisting. And what's the Kremlin's response to all of this? Well, I, I spoke to Dmitry Peskov, who's Vladimir Putin's spokesman, uh, earlier tonight about this. And, and you know, he's not in Moscow. They're, they're elsewhere in the country. And he said, look, we're, I haven't even seen these comments on these allegations, so I can't comment on it. We're, we're dealing with business that's important to Russia, he, he, he said to me, as if, as if this isn't important to Russia. But I, I, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the Kremlin is worried about what a funeral for Alexei Navalny, a public funeral for Alexei Navalny might mean. I mean, this is a guy who could rally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Russian, Russian towns and cities when he was alive. And the concern, I think, for the authorities who don't like dissent and have tried to crack down on it, is that his funeral, a public funeral, could be a focal point for, you know, anti-government protests. And that's particularly, they're particularly sensitive about that in the, just a few weeks now before presidential elections in this country. So is it clear what exactly needs to happen and when it might happen? Uh, I mean, whether Navalny's body could be released to his mom? Well, I mean, the, uh, Navalny's mom says that, you know, basically she was... She was threatened. Uh, they said, look, you've got to decide now what you want to do, because if you don't, then we'll do something to the body. That's that's the word she used. I mean, I assume they mean they'll they'll bury the body themselves or, or something like that. Um, but, you know, look, the, the body is in the morgue in this Arctic region to the north of Moscow. Um, I think everybody has agreed on one thing, which is the body's going to come back to this area, to Moscow, uh, to, to be buried. And so, look, we're, we're expecting that decision to be made very shortly. The authorities said a couple of days ago they needed two weeks to conduct medical tests, you know, autopsies, uh, post-mortems on Navalny's corpse to find out the cause of death. But it seems that that situation has now been resolved, mm. at least officially. And so it could be any day now that the body is handed over to, to the family and that funeral takes place. And, and you know, uh, it could be a, a private 
secret funeral that we won't hear about until it's actually finished. I mean, that was the situation, you remember, uh, last year with Evgeny Prigozhin, when he was sort of secretly buried in the city of St. Petersburg. Um, we didn't know about it until the funeral was already over. And that, that could be what the authorities want to achieve this time, too. And Matthew Chance in Moscow. Matthew, thank you. Between imprisoning and possibly murdering Alexei Navalny, arresting another American, the killing of that Russian defector in Spain, and revelations the Russian intelligence may again be meddling in American politics in the Biden impeachment inquiry, certainly feels like a lot. The add to that, this new war of words, new sanctions tomorrow, and of course the war in Ukraine. And it's hard not to wonder how much more strain the U.S.-Russia relationship can get. So with all of that as the backdrop, we want to get perspective tonight from Fiona Hill. She's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, the former senior director for Europe and Russia at the National Security Council. So do you think the, the U.S.'s new sanctions on Russia, which, as we mentioned, are expected to be announced tomorrow, I mean, will have much of an impact? Well, they won't have a, much of an impact in the uh, short to medium term, most likely. I mean, there's obviously quite a lot of symbolism um, associated with these, especially as they're being applied after the death of um, Alexei Navalny. But over the longer term, uh, sanctions are having an impact on uh, the Russian economy. They're also having an impact on you know, Russia's ability to rearm itself. It's just that we don't always see the, the, the results right away. Are you surprised? I mean, given your knowledge of the former president, uh, are you surprised at all that he has not condemned Vladimir Putin for Alexei Navalny's death in, and, in fact, has compared his own legal problems to what Navalny endured? Well, I am a little bit surprised that he went so far as to compare himself to Alexei Navalny. I mean, that's pretty brazen, to be frank. Well, he but compared not, himself um, to Mandela in the past, so it seems sort Well, of yes, I, su I suppose that, you know, if you put it into that comparison, this is um, already a pattern here. But in, in terms of um, the fact that he hasn't criticized Putin, I'm not surprised at all. I mean, for uh, former President Trump, Putin is to him the epitome of the strong man. He's the kind of person that he likes to style himself on. So there's no way that he would uh, criticize him for anything. So that's just, you know, really par for the course there. Navalny's mother has talked about pressure that she says she's receiving from Russian authorities in regards to the release of her son's body and his burial. Um, do you, can you foresee the Kremlin actually giving her the body, allowing for her to have a public funeral for her son? No, that's something that they're trying to avoid. I mean, actually, what's surprising about this is uh, the fact that uh, Navalny's mother has decided to speak out. She's obviously um, showing that she has a great deal of bravery and integrity herself, that this wasn't just a characteristic of her son. I mean, the fact that she's gone out on YouTube today telling everybody what's uh, happening. I mean, it's very clear that the Kremlin wants to avoid making uh, Navalny a martyr. They don't want any kind of risk of uh, larger public demonstrations around his death and that the uh, funeral itself becomes an event. You know, we've been reporting on this former FBI informant who, according to federal prosecutors, falsely accused the Biden family of illicit business dealings involving Ukraine, now telling investigators that some of the lies were passed to him by Russian intelligence. We don't know if that's true, if that's also a lie as well. Um, I'm wondering what you make of that, that development. Well, look, we've been played by Russian intelligence uh, throughout uh, our electoral campaigns, you know, going back to definitely to 2016. We've got plenty of evidence of this. This is hardly a surprise. Um, I myself, uh, when I was asked to testify in the first impeachment trial of President Trump, pointed out that so much of the information that was circulating around was either being amplified or being put out there in the first instant by uh, Russian intelligence uh, and, and was, you know, part of a, a Russian uh, pressure and 
influence operation. So that's hardly a surprise there. But again, you know, we're in that kind of environment where it's very difficult as, uh, for us to discern uh, truth from lies. And Putin and uh, the people around him like it that way. So we shouldn't also be surprised if this in of itself is uh, meant to muddy the waters even further. The, the indication was that he had information which might even impact the 2024 election uh, that he was trying to spread. How concerned are you about interference by Russia in, in this upcoming election? Well, look, I'll be frank, uh, Anderson, that we're our own worst enemies here. We've got plenty of misinformation circulating around uh, from American political sure. operatives. So there's not really that much uh, that the Russians have to do. But, you know, what is useful for them is our discord, is the rancor, is uh, the whole back and forth uh, among uh, our own politicians. And all they can do is amplify that. So, you know, we're already in that kind of environment where, you know, Russia has been stirring the pot and, you know, they don't really have to do very much uh, to uh, get a reaction from us. I still am stunned by what the former president said about, you know, welcoming the invasion of NATO countries that, in his opinion, haven't fully paid uh, their, uh, their their bills uh, to, to NATO. Um, I mean, it got something of an uproar, although it's sort of something we come to, to expect from, from the former president. How damaging do you think that is? The counter argument as well, of he's saying that to, to try to force NATO countries to 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 spend more but it certainly sends a message to Vladimir Putin doesn't it it does send a message to Putin. I mean, basically what the president has done is undercut uh, the value of Article 5. Because when you think about a mutual defense pact, uh, you know, you're supposed to be uh, protecting those who may be weaker uh, in uh, that alliance. Uh, the countries that even if um, they are spending 2% of their defense, obviously uh, that their defensive capacity doesn't match up to the stronger members of the alliance. That's what an alliance is supposed to be about. And frankly, President Trump has been uh, threatening the integrity of Article 5 going right back to the beginning of his presidency, where he didn't actually want to invoke that commitment in his very first address at uh, the NATO headquarters. Uh, Fiona Hill, thanks so much. Thank you, Anderson. We're just now learning that images from the moon's surface are about to come in. We'll have that and more ahead tonight. Also, on the state of the war in Ukraine, almost two years to the day since Russia invaded, what it's like right now in Kherson to the people who live there under heavy bombardment, some with no place else to go. By the end of this week, it'll be two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. While Republicans in the House make it impossible for Congress to approve funds for the defense of the country, Russia is making advances. And we want to show you what it's like on the ground in a city on the front lines plagued by constant shelling every day. Seeing as Nick Payton Walsh is there. It's night when it's loudest. Herson has seen every stage of the war's two years. Invasion, occupation and liberation. Yet day is when the damage is clearest. Well, the Russians may be now on the other side of the river, but you can see the force of the explosions that hit here just by these tree branches thrown up here on top of a roof. And it feels kind of like a remote occupation through Russian drone strikes, artillery attacks as well. So many of the buildings around here devastated. But Russian positions are visible across the water and on this side freshly dug trenches show how worried Ukraine is still. Across the river Ukraine sent troops months ago their hopes of a lightning dash to Crimea stuck in this rubble. 
And this week, Russia raised their flag over the tiny Ukrainian foothold of Krinky. Kiev denied they'd taken it and said drone footage showed the Russians fleeing. Yet just metres from the roar of thousands of daily silent stories of survival. In a city Russia cannot own, only crush with seemingly inexhaustible shelling. At 4am, we woken by three shells. They landed 100 metres away. So he's saying that they were first hit in November uh, and that blew out the glass in this flat here. So they moved to their mother's apartment over there um, and that basically saved their lives last night because the shrapnel from the mortar that landed here went all the way up into the flat where they used to live. In basement churches, the prayers are for basics. Spilling out into the light, part of a thousand people still in this district of the city, when before the war there were 30 times that. Sophia has outlasted her six siblings and gets food for her adult daughter. As Putin's war enters its third year, there seems no end to a million tiny, unseen agonies. Their old radio brings bad news of Russia assaulting Krinky. The war in every home, the normal, the boring, still targets today and tomorrow. Nick, I mean, the, just the resilience of, of people getting through each day, it, it's... I mean, it's remarkable and heartbreaking. Do any of the people you talk to there, many of them elderly, do they have any plans to leave Kherson? No, I mean, that's what's so utterly staggering, Anderson, is obviously in some cases they are simply stuck here. The man whose house you saw blown up by what seemed to be a mortar strike, uh, essentially, it's a pensioner. He has nothing to fund a departure or can dream of starting a new life somewhere else. I'm standing in a building where two years ago, almost to the day, we learned of the Russian invasion across the bridge over there and the people who run this building, they've barely left. Remember, it's not just the invasion, the occupation, 
during the liberation, there were intense floods that ran through Herson too in the height of summer after a dam upstream in the river burst. So much damage done to this city. And I think what's remarkable standing here to think about over these two years is quite what the Russian goal is. They're really thinning out the population here through this persistent shelling. I mean, it's remarkable just how non-stop the blasts really are. It is essentially a war zone, a city that was huge, vibrant and bustling two years ago, really reduced to a ghost at this point. And you've got to wonder what Putin's end goal is, to occupy areas with nobody left in them, without basic services, without any of the real buildings standing here. They celebrated replacing the 10,000th window here uh, in the last few weeks or so. Some repair workers told me it is literally barely a piece of glass remaining. And from a basic civilian level, that's the, the spoils of Putin's war, it seems, even if he did manage to get back into her on. So much damage done to so many of these cities and towns across Ukraine because of this invasion of choice uh, by the Kremlin. Anderson? Yeah, Kremlin Walsh, thank you. Be careful. Just moments ago, we got new word from Intuitive Machines in Houston. The Odysseus Lunar Lander, they say, is upright and starting to send new data. And they are, right now, working downlink the first images from the moon's surface. We'll bring you them as soon as we get them. Also ahead tonight, Trump wanting to delay paying the $355 million fraud penalty. The judge has now given him his ruling. Details on that ahead. Plus, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg accusing an Arizona prosecutor playing what he calls political games after she refused to send a murder suspect back to New York. We have details on that. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, new developments in the former president's New York civil fraud case. Trump requested a delay in paying the $355 million penalty, and now a judge has said no. CNN's Kara Scannell joins us now with the latest. What was the reasoning the judge gave? 
So Trump had asked for this delay because of the magnitude, this $355 million judgment. And the judge said that he did not provide, as he put it, he didn't, he failed to explain, much less justify any basis for a delay. And this is because the New York Attorney General's office had written up a proposed judgment and they were saying they wanted some time to look at it. The judge is saying this matches my order exactly, so mm. we're going to move forward. So he indicated to the parties in an email that he was going to now finalize this judgment because, you know, as we know, the ruling came down Friday, but it doesn't really become official until it's entered into the docket. So the judge noted on the docket that he was doing that, but it still has to get processed by a clerk. And once it is finally entered, which could be as soon as tomorrow or might take a couple days, then this will become official. So the clock starts ticking once it's finalized. That's right. So from whenever it is finalized, Trump will have 30 days to appeal and 30 days to post $355 million plus $100 million in interest. So a lot of money. He'll have to put that together either by posting the cash himself or getting a bond that can be backed by collateral, some of his properties. But he'll have, you know, about 30 days, and that includes the weekends. So if you kind of can guesstimate if this judgment does become final soon, that means he could have to foot this bill right when he's about to go to trial on the criminal hush money charges. Wow. All right, Kara Scannell, thanks so much. More legal battles now. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who's a Democrat, is hitting back at a Republican Arizona prosecutor after she refused to extradite a suspect in a New York City murder case. The suspect is accused of murdering a woman in a Soho hotel room earlier this month. He was arrested in Arizona this week on suspicion of stabbing two women in the state. The Maricopa County attorney cited Bragg's handling of other violent criminals as her reason not to send the suspect back to New York. CNN's Bryn Grass has details. It is deeply disturbing to me that a member of my profession, a member of law enforcement, would choose to play political games in a murder case. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg not mincing words, responding to this overt dig from Maricopa County, Arizona attorney Rachel Mitchell. Having observed uh, the treatment of violent criminals in the New York area by the Manhattan DA there, Alvin Bragg, I think it's safer to keep him here and keep him in custody. Mitchell refusing requests to send 26-year-old Rod Almansori back to New York, where police say he killed a woman in a hotel earlier this month, thrusting two elected state attorneys on opposing political sides into a war of words. We will not be agreeing to extradition. I've been doing this now for 20 years. I've never seen anything like it, let alone in a murder investigation. After bludgeoning 38-year-old Denise Oleas Arancibia, a bloody iron found next to her body, Almansori seen on surveillance video wearing the victim's leggings, the NYPD says he hopped a plane to Arizona, where he allegedly stabbed two women in two days before being arrested and confessing to the New York murder. While in the custody of Arizona law enforcement, he informs them that he is wanted for homicide in New York City and tells the cops that they should Google Soho 54 Hotel. Despite Mitchell having the right to keep Almansori in her jurisdiction, it's the way she made the call Bragg takes issue with. Plain and simple, old-fashioned grandstanding and politics. Bragg, a Democrat, consistently taking hate from conservatives. Let's talk about Alvin Bragg. He's a woke, progressive district attorney. Who accused him of being soft on crime in the country's biggest city and the attacks gaining traction as his office is gearing up to take former President Donald Trump to criminal court next month on charges of falsifying business records in the hush money case. These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are. 
we cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. Mitchell is a lifelong Republican. In 2018, she helped Trump get his Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, across the finish line with her hardline questioning of Christine Blasey Ford, who had accused Kavanaugh of sexual assault. How were you able to narrow down the time frame? I can't give the exact date. Another cross-country political standoff not over yet. We're saying we're going first. County DA Mitchell has, I don't know how else to say it, just got it wrong at every single term. And, and I mean, what options does Bragg have here? Yeah, so this murder suspect, Al Mansouri, has to go in front of a judge in Arizona for an extradition hearing. Of course, there he can either consent to come back here to New York or he could stay there. More than likely, he's going to stay there. So Bragg said he's really not going to back down here. He's going to put together an extradition package, which would then go to New York's governor, uh, Kathy Hochul. And I reached out to her to see how she's going to get involved in this. If she's going to get involved in this, no answer back. Uh, but again, clear, neither side here is backing down. All right, Brynjan Grass, thanks so much. Right. Appreciate it. Just had two days until the South Carolina Republican presidential primary. The debate over which candidate to choose still a big topic on the airwaves of local talk radio. The Trump is obviously uh, ahead by a lot in the polls. Randy Kay joins us with that story next. And later, what caused that massive AT&T cellular outage today? Just moments ago, the company says it has the answer. We'll tell you what they say ahead. Two days until the South Carolina primary and polls suggest the former president is headed uh, to a massive win over Nikki Haley. But despite the long odds for an upset, the race is still a hot, sometimes contentious topic of local talk radio. Randy Kay has more. We are talking nothing but politics today, particularly the Republican primary on Saturday. Just days away from the South Carolina Republican primary and the phone lines on the Point Radio in Columbia are lighting up. Y'all have got to watch Nikki Haley. She's, she's nothing but a Trojan horse for the Democratic Party. She is bought and sold by the Democrats. She will, she's going to be the equivalent of Joe Biden in office. Nikki Haley will be who I will be voting for tomorrow. She's got that foreign policy down pat. She already has some contacts. And hopefully it would be a, a change of pace. Vote for Donald Trump, and uh, the main reason is the border. The border is an absolute mess. Nikki Haley got high marks from most callers for her job as governor of this state. As far as Nikki, if you really drill down, I, I you know, me with the, all the state house politics, she did a lot. That E-Verify that, that she pushed through, you know, that's real stuff. Some callers praise Donald Trump. I'll be voting for uh, Trump. The biggest issue by far is over 8 to 10 million illegal aliens sucking up billions of dollars in benefits that should be going to American citizens, not to illegal aliens. You are Trump no matter what. You can stomach the guy, his bombastic, narcissistic self. You're okay with the guy. Yes. To me, I want a good president. I don't care about the other stuff. That's fluffed me. I want someone who's going to be strong on foreign policy, strong for economy, strong for this country. And I believe that's Donald Trump. Others sounded tired of his antics. The biggest problem, uh, he just can't close his mouth. He just can't hush <laughs> and, and, and let it go. Uh, you know, and Nikki, she's not perfect, but us younger folks out there, you know, we need, we need to, to start doing something a little different. 
One Trump supporter called in to suggest certain people won't vote for Haley because she called for the removal of the Confederate flag from South Carolina's state capitol following the shooting death of nine African-Americans at Mother Emanuel AME Church in 2015. I don't think that the Confederate flag gun tote and pickup truck bubbas are going to vote for because people haven't forgiven her for taking the flag down. Other callers said they hope Haley stays in the race, just in case. Do you think she has a chance this weekend? Very little. Yeah. Very little. I mean, I've, I'm going to throw it towards her, though, just because, you know, we're still a long way off. A lot can happen with, uh, with old Donald between now and then. The reason I think it's important that she stick around is because, I will go on the record, when it comes to the actual time to put pen to paper for the presidency, I don't believe Joe Biden or Donald Trump will be the nominee for either party. I did vote for Trump before, but he has just gone off the rails. Among the callers, three Democrats who said they are voting for Haley in the primary. South Carolina is an open primary state. I'm registered Democrat, and I'm like the previous caller. I am voting for Nikki. When the general comes around, if it's Nikki versus uh, Biden, will you vote Nikki again? You know, then, then it's going to be close. Randy joins us now. Did a lot of the callers say how they would vote in the general? They did, Anderson, and that's where it got interesting because the Democrats who are supporting Haley in the primary said that if she is the Republican nominee, they would be really torn about supporting her versus Joe Biden. These are Democrats, they said, uh, that they would have a really tough decision to make. Now, on the flip side of that, you had one Republican man who was also supporting Haley, and he was asked if it, if it is not Haley and it's Trump-Biden, he said he would support Biden, and that really shocked the radio host. That's a Republican man supporting Biden. But now, of course, Trump did have plenty of support uh, among the callers, although one person did say he would write in somebody if Trump was the Republican nominee. Uh, but one of the issues that really came up a lot, Anderson, was age. Many of these callers had a real problem and a lot of angst about the age of both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And many of the Haley supporters said they would like to see a fresh face in the White House, Anderson. All right, Randy Kay, thanks so much. Coming up, more breaking news. An AT&T moments ago issued a statement on what caused that massive cellular outage for its customers. We have details next. Moments ago, AT&T said that massive outage for its cellular customers today was linked to an error that occurred while trying to expand its network. They also said it was not the result of a cyber attack. Federal agencies are also investigating after tens of thousands, potentially more, were unable to place calls or to text. Uh, take a look at this map. The outage was massive. According to the website Down Detector, these were the major cities reporting outages. Service wasn't fully restored until a little after 3 p.m. today, some 11 hours after the first uh, reports began. That's it for us. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. 
Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support.